and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, West Vic PHN Hub. It is uh, Series 8, Session 6, Thursday, the 3rd of March, 2022. Welcome back. Uh, this morning, we'll be doing a vaccine roundup, um, a rather optimistic title implying that this is the last vaccine conversation we'll be having for a while. And really, I think we know it. Uh, probably all know it won't be. But anyway, we'll call it that. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We pay our um, respect to elders um, past and present, recognise the diversity, resilience in the ongoing place that First Nations people hold in our community. Um, and we support self-determination for First Nations people and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. Well, last week, the mask mandate came to an end and many of the public health orders that we've lived with for the past few months shifted. In the spirit of moving into COVID normal uh, and opening up Victoria, there was a flurry of excitement as tickets for an international band went on sale for an open air stadium event in our own West Vic region. However, I didn't get tickets. Uh, my slow reaction time is indicative of my caution as we adjust to this next phase of the pandemic um, or re uh, uh, recovery or hiatus, whatever we uh, think this might be. So, well, how are we all adjusting to these changes in primary care and what has been changing in your systems and processes over the past week as some of these mandates and public health orders, um, you know, wind back? What are you wearing in your uh, clinics as the mandate drops? And more important, uh, what are your patients ready, willing and able to do to protect you and us as healthcare workers uh, and also other priority groups in your waiting rooms? With booster rates stalling, how are we going in primary care with keeping up with the promotion and the administration of access for third doses? Who are we prioritising for these doses and um, at this time and how are we promoting and administering them? And finally, what's new in vaccines and how will we implement these changes? Um, so, yes, if anyone does have tickets, you know, it's not too late. Or if anyone knows how to get tickets, I think Kate Graham was interested too. Tell us who's going to the Fooies this Friday and what else is happening in your world, um, both socially and uh, at work as we settle into this next phase. Let's get it underway. I'm Bianca Forrester. I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside Fee and Whitney, our ECHO coordinators. Um, welcome, everyone from the regions. Thanks for introducing yourself in the chat. You know the drill with our, our etiquette. We'd love to see you light up your cameras. Um, you can control your privacy, however, during the didactics by putting it off. But when we come to our conversations, we'd love to see your face. Uh, our learning outcomes for the series remain the same as always, but we're now developing specific outcomes for each session. Um, we, again, reach out for cases. Thank you so much to everyone who's submitted a case so far. And, uh, and of course, um, we'll go get into the agenda in a second. Um, and uh, But I still need cases. So in a way, I'm, I'm now looking for what are you wanting to hear? about over the next couple of weeks and I'm starting to think about planning uh, for the next uh, term really I guess I'm thinking about what are we going to be doing kind of for the next three months so those cases will inform the curriculum send them through um, it's not an echo without them so thank you very much okay uh, so what have we got on for today we're going to flip the order a little. Uh, we're going to start with our kind of uh, content didactic, our um, you know specialist focus on it on the topic of vaccine up update with Callum Mags, and we welcome Dr. Callum Mags, infectious diseases physician and clinical lead from the Vixis Clinic at Barwon Health, uh, to to give us a, a potpourri type uh, presentation about 
that we were up to with vaccines. Um, thank you to Dr. Mike Sullivan of um, Ballarat Medical Centre. He's a GP and he's bringing a case presentation this morning. Um, thank you very much for that. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, Dr. Kate Graham, as you know, is the GP, is GP clinical editor of Health Pathways, COVID clinical advisor to the Westpac PHN, as well as, well as wearing other, other hats and has now become a authorised officer, which is very exciting, um, to uh, in the public health gig. So she's going to share policies and guideline updates um, at this time. And uh, Naomi White, COVID Positive Pathways Manager, Westwick PHN, is in, the, in Linda's hot seat this morning. Um, and she'll be letting us know what's happening from the PHN's perspective around supporting the work that we do in primary care. So um, what I wanted to sort of talk about today is really just that pulse check of where we're up to, what we're um, doing ourselves, what's happening in the community. And so I really wanted to encourage everyone in the chat today um, or to send in any questions you have, what's on your mind, what's causing trouble for you personally in general practice um, across your region, just all things related to COVID because we want to keep these topics um, relevant to you. And the best way to do that is to find out what's going on in each of the regions because there's so much diversity across them. And I had to add in a House of God quote. Um, and if you haven't read it, I'm sure it's still relevant. Um, so I'll just go on to the next slide. So in terms of sort of returning to back where we've been before, I thought we'd just revisit their principles of infection control um, in primary care what we can keep doing because there was a lot of talk um, last week about masks and where the pandemic orders would sit on that um, because we are healthcare facilities um, and healthcare organizations we are able to mandate mask use for patients within general practice but masks are really the last point of protection um, so thinking back to all the other things that we keep doing because over time it does become sort of a little bit forgotten, um, particularly sort of when things are changing so frequently. So I'll just go on to the next slide. So the other thing that I wanted to mention is that contact assessment and management guidance. Um, if you haven't seen the new version, um, what I wanted to flag is that we've really moved towards there being the 15 minutes for face-to-face -face, um, contact within 1.5 metres, or um, the two hours in a small room. Um, what is changed though is for lower risk exposures, so things which would have sat within the matrix, so some of our consults where you're not within 1.5 metres because you've sat your room kind of carefully distance, uh, they're not officially workplace contacts, but within your practice you have the freedom to be able to sort of monitor and sort of do things around that the way that you want. While the workplace contact testing is mandated, um, the lower risk exposures aren't, um, but you can sort of do that within your practice depending on what the risk was. So that puts a little bit more pressure on um, where things are for the individual practices. But if you have any questions or guidance, reach out, talk to your public health unit about what the exposure was um, and how to manage it if you're not certain as to the level of risk for individuals. So next slide, unless we have Callum with us. Um, so protecting our most vulnerable patients is something that I really wanted to flag as well, because while there's a lot of media about um, in terms of COVID normal and living with COVID and that everyone's had COVID and that it's milder, 
uh, it's not mild still for some people and it's still um, an issue. So we might come back to this now because I see that Karen's in the room um, as well. So um, we might get the slides back to his presentation. I can come back to it a bit later. So, um, yeah, look, just a, um, a, a brief couple of, look, there's, I was looking at PubMed <laughs> um, the other day and um, the number of publications coming out about COVID and um, vaccines with COVID is in the order of hundreds of thousands. So I've just cherry picked a couple of things based on what um, Bianca was saying she was getting questions about. Um, and um, the, the first thing to talk about, I think, which is one of the things that people have been asking me a lot of questions about is the concept of Novavax um, as, a, uh, as a booster shot. Um, because um, a lot of people have had adverse events, as I'm sure everyone's seen, with um, AstraZeneca or Pfizer or both, um, and uh, are keen to ask this question. Uh, do you want to go to the next slide? Um, so it's, a, it's unfortunately not, in terms of Im immunogenicity, it's unfortunately not the best news um, for Novavax. So this British group that was studying heterologous prime boost or mixed schedules, whatever you want to call them, with Pfizer and AstraZeneca last year, um, uh, have also included um, Novavax and this other French vaccine in their study now um, to have a look at um, the immunogenicity if you follow up um, either two doses of AstraZeneca or two doses of Pfizer with a dose of um, various vaccines, including full-dose Novavax or half-dose Novavax. Um, it's, look, it's, it's not terrible. Um, it's, so this group here um, with this forest plot, um, you can see that um, this, is, this is following um, AstraZeneca um, having a, a booster, and this is looking at um, spike, anti-spike um, antibodies. And this is not a neutralization assay. This is just um, antibodies. Um, and Novavax is um, slightly better than, than AstraZeneca um, in terms of uh, uh, antibodies produced, and, and the, the safety profile is pretty good. But do you want to go to the next slide? If you follow it from Pfizer, which you know now we're probably seeing a lot more people with um, Pfizer, you know, first two doses being Pfizer. Um, unfortunately, um, Novavax isn't any better than um, AstraZeneca or just another dose of mRNA. Um, and then sometimes in terms of cellular response down the very bottom here of this slide, it's actually um, crosses the line with placebo. So um, your cell mediated immunity that comes along with Novavax after these vaccines is probably not that good. Um, it's, it's very safe, well tolerated. I haven't got the slide here, but the side effects are, are pretty minimal and, and similar to if you follow it up with other vaccines. Um, but um, if you're counselling patients about that question, um, I, I would just tell them, look, it's, it's safe, but it's, it's not as good as um, having um, Pfizer, uh, basically, or, or Moderna as a follow-up vaccine. And it's not very well studied. The numbers here are sort of in, in the hundreds, so it's about 50 in each arm. So um, very well, very safe, but we don't think that it necessarily produces a great immune response and we don't know what it's, um, and this is pre-Omicron data as well, as is looking at um, anti-spike proteins against um, Delta. So um, 
I would tell them if they're, some people are coming in with an adverse event following one dose of AstraZeneca or one dose of Pfizer and, and have been now holding out for Novavax. I think that's reasonable to give them um, a full course of Novavax with two doses. Um, but to give them one dose after two other doses doesn't necessarily protect you more than um, two doses of, of Pfizer or AstraZeneca. So I'd be recommending they stick with the vaccine that they had or going with an mRNA vaccine as a boost at this stage. Let's go to the next slide. Oh, so the other question coming up is about um, four-dose regimens. Um, so this study is um, from Israel uh, and it looks like in healthy, the healthy populations, so this was a study of um, thousand, about a thousand healthcare workers. So um, generally healthy, fit young people, non-immunosuppressed um, and looking at um, what happens when you give them a fourth dose of Pfizer. There's a modest increase in antibody responses. Um, and if you are in the cohort where you, your antibodies are waned, it does boost you back up to um, other people's levels of antibodies. But in terms of translation to infect, uh, protection from infection, um, that, so there's probably no benefit in terms of protection from severe disease. It's still very good with three doses. Um, uh, and in terms of uh, protection from infection, it doesn't actually add anything in terms of protecting you from getting infected. So this, it theoretically doesn't reduce your risk of transmission. So at this stage, there's no recommendation for healthy people to get um, get four doses, basically. Should we go to the next slide? Callum, can I just um, do a quick sense check there? And again, this is where I like to ask questions that for me might feel like silly questions. Mm. Is what you're saying that um, with that fourth dose, we might see kind of, uh, you know, that the, the, the antibody markers come up, but in fact, yep. real life, it might not be really making any difference. This is not giving us any better protection against severe disease and, and or it's still enabling that it will still the, the virus will be escaping the, the, the defense system. So it's not doing anything to kind of help us have a quick response mm. yeah so it's so this has been known covid covid is a new virus but respiratory viruses have been around a long time and if you look at respiratory virus vaccines they're all terrible so actually covid vaccines are you know the absolute gold standard in terms of respiratory virus vaccines and the problem is we're giving an intramuscular dose of antigen for uh, a very complex mucosal infection that relies on innate and adaptive immunity. And there's it's just there's just absolute chaos going on in mucosal surfaces that are exposed to the environment, like airways. So um, you could have very high measurable antibodies that will um, protect you from a lot of things, uh, like severe disease. They'll protect you from long COVID because we're now seeing data that um, long COVID is probably associated with viremia at the time of infection. Um, and other odd things like, you know, reactivation of EBV, viremia and things like that. Um, so it will protect you from those things, but in terms of protecting from infection and therefore reducing transmission, that is a really, that's the holy grail of respiratory virus vaccines. And I think um, as a society, we've all been very caught up in the concept of uh, protecting from any infection and therefore transmission. And that's what people use to talk about how bad the vaccines are, but, um, all we can really expect is protection from severe disease. And for that, you just need a certain uh, level of um, neutralizing antibodies and or T cell immunity, really. Um, mm, so the virus gets into the nose, 
there's a wait until those T-cells stand up and that's why you might be getting a little bit of a rhinitis in response. It's part of that uh, immune system waking exactly. up. So, so it's, it's not it's, it's not cost effective for your body to send neutralizing anti or memory B cells and T-cells, which are highly treasured cells to the mucosa to just die every day waiting for a respiratory virus to get there. So that's that's why it's not very good giving an intramuscular vaccine to protect against any infection. Um, there's there'd be all these dendritic cells and you know surveillance cells that are non-specific lining the mucosa that are the first line of defense. And they're the ones that get taken out and then take the antigen to your lymph node to make a immune response to protect you from severe disease, which is viremia and you know vas vascular <clears throat> phenomena. But in terms of protecting from just a, a mild respiratory illness, um, I don't think we've ever been able to do that, uh, unfortunately. Mm, good to know. All right, great. I feel smarter, guys. I hope, how about you? Did that uh, kind of clarify that bit or do you have any other questions? Um, just actually quickly, because I want to try to smash a few questions before we move to the case. It appears that one is only measuring the humoral response, not the T-cell response, says uh, Shantini Callum. Yeah, so only in research are we measuring um, T-cell responses. Um, and that's if you look at that last study, they, they looked at T-cell um, epitopes against, so you can do it in research, T-cell epitopes against the viral antigens. Um, but um, in terms of serology, you know, commercially available, they only measure antibodies and we still don't really even know what it means, um, to be honest. And, like, you know, we've got spike um, antibody uh, commercial assays and we've got nuclear capsid ones which theoretically should distinguish from vaccine immunity and natural immunity but in practice they, they're not that good because there's just so much the, the immune system's very complicated How long after um, boosted dose does your immunity seem to wane from a protection from severe disease long COVID and I guess my question is does it? No, well no and that's yeah so so the def, they definitely wane but the there's a few studies looking at the estimated um, amount of neutralizing antibody or, or um, T cell immunity that you need to protect from um, severe disease. And um, it's it's hundredfold lower than what you initially produce when you get vaccinated. So even though immunity does wane, there's persisting protection against severe disease as far as we've been measuring really. Um, as except, far as we've been measuring, but what do we know from other respiratory viruses? If you're saying that actually we are kind of using our knowledge for COVID vaccines, we can rely on what we have experienced in the past with other respiratory mm. viruses. Do, do we maintain our T-cell response over time? Well, it's, it's more complicated than just your immune response to one virus. So other respiratory viruses like influenza um, mutate, basically. So they, they, they evade the immune system and, and the example with COVID is Omicron. So um, we, even though as far as we measured out to, you know, six, 12 months, you were protected from severe disease with Delta, um, then Omicron comes along and has pretty good immune evasion, although inherently doesn't seem to cause um, severe disease as much anyway. So yeah, with this constantly evolving virus, it's really hard to know. Um, so, is, is that the case with Omicron that it doesn't cause severe disease, or is it just because we're all vaccinated? Well, that's a very good question. So, there's we if you look at the unvaccinated population, Delta was 
definitely more severe than um, Omicron. Is um, in the unvaccinated population. Yeah, but okay. there still there still is severe disease in the unvaccinated population. Um, it, in terms of uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to know with because we don't really we, we do focus on hospitalisation a little bit um, with with the double vaccines against Omicron, but all our data is still around Delta. So. I think it's just that people, we're saying be cautious interpreting data at the moment because we're only in the, the end of February, start of March, and Omicron is really a 2022 virus. And it takes a long time to set up a, a decent prospective study. Yeah. Uh, and so all the data we're reviewing now is, is, is Delta virus. Um, but uh, that's what my next slide was about, actually, was sort of more about transmission and infection and severe disease but let's do it it's gonna it, say cal do i have are you a hard finish at eight uh yeah probably I'll, I'll get to this really quickly so um basically this is a danish study looking at um the crossover from delta to omicron and comparing unvaccinated double vaccinated and booster vaccinated households and transmission and basically what they could demonstrate was that um, there, with two doses of vaccine um, and three doses of vaccine, you had, you had a significant reduction in transmission of Delta. Um, whereas if you look at unvaccinated uh, compared to double vaccinated with Omicron, transmission was, um, not, was not really different at all. And then booster vaccinated barely reduced the transmission of Omicron by you know, an order of sort of 10 to 30%. So it, that just demonstrates that Omicron is evading our immune response to vaccines but um but the the anecdotal um suggestions at the moment are that if you're triple vaccinated you're not, you're not going to icu basically so um there is some difference between double vaccinated and triple vaccinated in terms of protection against severe disease with omicron um and the numbers in general are reduced and i haven't got a slide here for it but south africa have looked at some data very poor vaccination rates i think they looked at 15 million people 4 million were vaccinated so low vaccination rates uh, and they had an excess mortality of about 60,000 people. So that paid a price, but their, their rates of hospitalisation are coming down and their, their peak of hospitalisations of um, ICU admissions was, was lower than with Delta. So that's a suggestion that it's a, it's a less um, severe variant at the moment um, and that um, triple vaccination is, is protective to some degree in Australia from our data. Um, but four, four vaccinations isn't showing any kind of advantage at the moment. Okay, thanks, um, Callum. So let's get on to those uh, boosters. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Thanks, everyone. I'll just get the slides up again to remind me where I was up to. Um, and I think, like... Um, we'll cover a little bit more about the vaccines in a moment, but save some of those questions that you're thinking about and some of those challenges um, around vaccination, around access to um, VIXIS, around all the procedures and processes. Um, send them through to us, pop them in the chat, uh, because that's sort of what we want to be able to talk about with you and help you out with. So back to protecting our most vulnerable patients. Um, I think some of it is about knowing who is actually vulnerable. And so with that, you're thinking about people who are actually doing quite well. Um, so we're thinking about our boosted patients in aged care. 
are actually not doing disastrously in terms of their COVID outcomes. So they're possibly a little bit less vulnerable than some of our other cohorts. Immunocompromise is one of the key sort of areas. And I think they're a patient group uh, that you want to sort of be able to target really quickly when you do sort of get um, a positive COVID result. And in terms of making sure that your setup, your practice is safe for them as well. So infection control in the practice, vaccination and making access easier is really one of Are you watching roles. hair videos? Good plat. <laughs> um, so that sounds like my household. Um, <laughs> so we've got um, sort of lots of ways that we can make access easier for various sectors in our community that are more vulnerable, um, either due to illness, disability, or through actual access issues. And so I think between your own resources within general practice, the PHN um, and our public health units coordinating vaccination. Um, we've got some really good programs out there to help support disability um, and some of our other vulnerable groups. Identifying illness early, I think is really important. Um, so that means sort of testing anyone with vague symptoms, screening and surveillance um, programs where appropriate. Because often people who are vulnerable, um, thinking particularly in disability residential units, things like that, it really reduces the risk to others around them when we are identifying cases quickly and facilitating the early access to treatments. And I wanted to flag, like after all our discussions last week, that on Health Pathways, we've got all the phone numbers now listed uh, for all the referral um, information for Citrovimab and for access to the oral medications. And really supporting positive care treatment at the most appropriate level for the individual situation. And there was a really good webinar on yesterday um, that was from Safer Care Victoria around the positive care pathways, um, where one of the GPs who was involved in setting up the original sort of positive care pathways was really about focusing on the individual and if you focus on the individual as part of your response to an illness or um, a condition, then that means that we're treating them in primary care and that has a secondary effect of reducing hospitalisation rather than focusing purely on hospitalisation and diverting hospitalisations or emergency presentations, which I thought was a really good takeaway from that. I'll just go on to the next slide. So vaccinations. Um, I think the one thing that I did want to flag is the Moderna vaccination, um, just really reinforcing that it's half the adult dose or the same as the booster dose, but there are no differences in the vials. And that's the key reason why it's not the preferred vaccine for this age group, just due to the increased risk of errors. There's also a little bit less information about Moderna in terms of evidence, just because it hasn't been used as widely across the world. Um, priority populations for third doses, apart from targeting vulnerable sections of the population, our 40 to 49 year olds are lagging. And I'm not sure why that is. Um, is it because they're all parents of kids who have had COVID and brought it into the house as I think many of my 40 to 49 year old friends would confirm? Um, or why we are seeing this? Or is it just that everyone is sort of back into a routine and is forgetting that they're a really key group to target 
we know that previously they've been a key group to target for lots of health-related conditions. So hopefully we'll see some of them soon. So I'll just go on to the next one. So our COVID positive care resources, um, the oral antiviral resources, the NPS resource that's now available is um, has a much wider scope than probably the one that we shared last week that had the information purely on um, sort of the frequently asked questions. It's now quite an extensive resource. Um, so Legevrio is now also PBS listed. And that's something else to flag, that while it's PBS listed, you're probably not going to be able to access it in your local pharmacy. And because you still need to go via the health service in most cases for it, um, you do need to sort of probably take their advice on where prioritisation sits. Um, but again, thinking about that early access to um, treatment, particularly in rural and regional areas where it may mean having sort of medications shipped out. So making sure that people have appropriate access to testing and that education around patients. So that if your patient becomes positive, they know what to do next. Um, and I think that there's possibly a community-wide lack of knowledge that there are treatment options for people, particularly people who haven't been fully vaccinated um, or who have significant health risk factors. Um, and that's something that we can help contribute to. So I can see in a chat, how do we know which pharmacies will have Legevrio? Um, my answer to that at the moment would be none of them. <laughs> um, anecdotally, um, I think that supply will improve soon. But first option, I think at the moment would be going through the local health service um, that is coordinating the COVID care for your region. And they, are, they have a stockpile within the health services and they can arrange distribution. So that would probably be my um, advice at this point in time until we get better stock out in pharmacies because the PBS listing is doesn't mean that there's more stock available or that it's more widely available it just means that the government's willing to pay for it so that it doesn't have to purely come out of state budgets. So uh, let me get this straight right now we can write a script technically yep. the PBS will pay for it yes but the patient might not be able to get it Yes, that is correct. But it needs to be given within the first five days. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, guys, how do we feel about this? I mean, you know, it's really great to be able to do something and what power we wield with script pads. I mean, it's awesome really, isn't it? But we really do want a doctor's bag where we can open it and actually the things that we want inside of it are inside of it. Kate, what's your recommendation at the moment? If a GP is going to be writing the script for, for you know, uh, for... Legevrio, Molnupiravir. I've now got that down pat. I haven't got Legevrio down pat. Um, you know, really, do we really probably need to be investigating the chain of supply before we hand over that script? Or we're sending a patient into a world of pain? I think so. Like, I think that it's at the moment, it would be sort of part of our responsibility to help facilitate it for the patient rather than leaving a patient to be calling around and making their own phone calls because they're not Got to get it. I've got Alison. Alison Miller. With a hand up, which is very Jeff's exciting. Put something <laughs> else in the chat as well. So let's go to our GPIU team for a moment. Thanks. Oh, 
we've had lots of discussion about how all of this works, excuse the mask, um, shared shared office. Um, but one of the difficulties is, is there's sort of no indication about when it's going to be in community pharmacies. So sort of our pharmacists certainly aware of the fact that it's, uh, you know, that that now it's PBS listed people can write a script, but you, you can't get it. So the only way you can access it, access it is through the local health service. So it is going to be that usual um, contact for, for us with the pathways that we've um, put in place to um, to enable access. The other thing is because everyone, just making sure everyone does upload their RAT, because once that happens in our, in our region, they then also have um, the, that goes through the, the, the usual processes through, through the, the, the government um, Trevi database, and then they get put on COVID monitor. So that's the, that, so that they do get captured in our region. So everyone gets captured. So if you've got a diagnosis with a positive rat, make sure it's uploaded. Um, and then there are a couple of ways that people actually get picked up as well as if they're talking to you, but because it's, the drugs are not available in the community, there's no point writing a script. So until the government says they're in the pharmacies and we know they're in the pharmacies, don't cause yourselves or your patients the pain. Mm. And, and as Anna Glue describes, of course, last week what we heard was, well, in fact, Paxlovid and Sotrovimab are better. So really the molnupiravir is kind of like, it's a funny pathway really, because it's like, okay, we can do this one, but in fact, these ones are probably optimal and um, that requires a health service. So there's kind of a uh, you know, fragmented system where the two hands yeah. don't often know what's going on with one another. It's complexity. Again, yeah. I'm hearing Alison say the key piece in the chain is upload rat result to Trevi which puts them in the health service pathway um and what what are you seeing is that kind of how what's the time for that if if, if all the gp said was right you are eligible potentially eligible for treatment you need to get your rat uploaded and you'll hear from someone how long are we waiting for that at the moment at, from your end well, theoretically, it's actually 12 hours till we get the information. But what's the actuality of then the patients being contacted to be interviewed for all that information? Um, yeah, I, I can't actually give you that data. So that's why I think it's important to be able to, if you flag someone, send the information through, it may be that we, there are, there are some discussions about how we process that best. But at the moment, we've been picking people up and getting running with them. Um, and then the, the information's been getting through the electronic system, probably about, you know, 12 to 24 hours later. Guys, if you've got a case of this, I'd love it. Because in my mind, I'm now wanting a case. I'm thinking, right, what's my algorithm here? I'm saying upload your ad. I'm sending in a referral to my GPLU team in, in um, you know, Ballarat Bow. And I'm looking at Naomi's described the health pathways to navigate this in your region. I'm probably booking a daily telehealth review. I don't know, guys, you know, let's get a case. So if anyone's got one, this would be how we would start to kind of understand what's our algorithm of care for these patients uh, while we're waiting for this to kick in in the back end because we really need to close the loop, don't we? Yeah, we've certainly had the situation where patients have been referred to us from um, another source, so a specialist, but actually might have also had a contact with a sort of GP, but no one in our in our region. We've actually been given a script for molnupiravir by their GP. This is a, two weeks ago, oh. and it doesn't exist. You know, like no. the, the drug's yeah. not available. So I think actually, if we have, if we understand there's no supply, so even if there's talk about it, if you go, well, there's no supply, there's no point of actually doing it. You know, mm, okay. don't, don't write the script. So, okay, thanks, Alison. Mm. Jeff, um, Jeff popped in the chat, uh, you know, what the pathway is for Bow. And did you have anything else you wanted to add, Jeff? Okay, Kate, I'll go back over to you um, to pick it up. Where did we get up to? 
Yeah, so I think like I just sort of um, think about, there were a couple of questions in the chat as well, um, just about the practical perspective of how do patients get the medication delivered if they don't live near a major centre. And a lot of that, again, if you're coordinating through the health services, it becomes significantly easier because they have the hospital and the home teams often in the rural or regional areas who have the capacity to be able to go out and do deliveries. Couriers are used. There's all sorts of ways and means to get things places that they need to be. But because of the challenges of it, um, just of distance and staffing and those kind of things, the earlier you can get in, the better. Um, and I think that also as well, like just having that clinical conversation um, with one of the COVID clinicians in your region, um, again, the contacts for those are on health pathways for that escalation of care, just in terms of which medication a patient will be suitable for. Um, and that's really going to sort of help you um, determine if your patient is eligible um, and sort of which medication is going to be the best option for them and where, where they fit in the priority matrix until things are a little more accessible. Guys, we're going to do a session on the 24th. We've got Caroline, uh, either Caroline Bartolo or Rachel Cowan coming along. So I need a case. Let's have a case of this. I think it would be really good. Um, and let's really interrogate those pathways again. Um, to just kind of pivot shift a little bit, Kate, there's just a little thing on the end of your slide talking about, um, <clears throat> you know, G you, you made, made, made that kind of, you talked about patient-centred care for COVID and how do GPs work within the, what's most appropriate for the patient. I'm just thinking about in whom um, might the GP be involved in other continuing care and, and would, um, you know, in what, under what circumstances might we, might we be considering, say, home visiting? Because uh, Naomi in a moment will tell us briefly about a home visiting uh, incentive that's coming through the PHN. So in whom might we think uh, as GPs we might need to home visit? Well, I think that um, when you're thinking about your patients and their ability to access care, what's available in their local area. Um, so when you've got people who have a GP respiratory clinic nearby um, and they're quite capable of driving and have transport, those kind of things, it's really easy to sort of be able to help facilitate um, them to get um, in-person assessment. For the people who may have um, significant physical disability, um, and who may be at risk both from the disability and from COVID themselves, uh, COVID itself. Like, I think that um, those kind of patients, it's the patients who you may have already been doing home visits on. Um, and I think it's part of making COVID care our normal. And so with the new PPE access as well, um, of seeing patients in person, I think that, you know, we've got that capacity um, at present, you know, you're thinking about your own individual risk of going out. But I think that part of that holistic care for a patient is potentially being able to see them in their home to provide a medical assessment in certain cases where they're that in-between level um, between sort of hospitalised care or needing to present to emergency and standard phone care. If they're not able to participate in telehealth, or if they have other medical conditions that you need to keep an eye on during that period of time that they have COVID, 
Um, it's incredibly important not to let other medical conditions fall by the wayside and not be treated because somebody has COVID in the community. Mm, such as a, uh, an ulcer dressing or GPs. I'm thinking what are the other circumstances where, again, you might not want to bring that person with COVID into the clinic, but they really do need uh, continuing care through that week. And, you know, referral to IDNS isn't going to cut it because it might take, what, a week to set that up? Or I don't know, you know, logistically, yeah, practically speaking, I'm keen to hear from you guys. What are the kinds of things that you would be thinking might warrant a, a home visit? Let's start thinking about it. And if you've got a case of someone that you've gone and visited, um, be keen to hear it. Kate, was that, is there anything else that you wanted to let us know about this week? No, I think that they're probably the key points. Um, so I think that there's lots that we can keep talking about and we can keep talking about till the end of time. Um, but that's what we've got next week for and the week after and all the weeks ahead where COVID continues to be part of our world. So Thank you. keep sending it in. Yeah, keep sending it in. So we're going to submit a case. We've popped it in the chat. If you want to actually just do it now, you've got five more minutes. Um, that'd be awesome. Next week, we're going to run a GP-led session. I think just a little bit of time to uh, you know focus on GP topics. Uh, following week, we'll do we'll revisit oral antivirals. So I need a case for that. Uh, coming after that, no, sorry, following on from that, we're going to do an immunology session. So if you've got a weird, wonderful reaction to either COVID or the vaccine, this is where we'll start to tidy up our immunology uh, with our VIND. Following that, um, oral antivirals. Um, we're going to wrap it up with serology and uh, testing um, for, before the holidays kick off. So let's hear some cases. All right, over to you, Naomi. Thank you, Bianca. Uh, just a quick update and very grateful that you've given me more than 30 seconds today, Bianca. Uh, so just reminding that the Pfizer booster is approved for the 16 to 17 year olds um, and that the changing of language from booster to third dose, uh, Moderna uh, approved for the six to 11 year olds that um, Kate mentioned earlier. Uh, our EOI for delivering of Moderna and Novavax remains open. Uh, if you should an email through to either the COVID inquiry or Claire or Linda, that will get followed up. Uh, we think about three weeks from your expression of interest to being able to deliver. Uh, the Commonwealth is currently reviewing the processes um, for the access to a minimum order of 60 doses. Uh, at the moment, um, you can still email through um, to Claire and Linda for a request to do so, and we can pass that on, but it's not a guaranteed at the moment. Um, the Vaccine Clinic Finder Connect has been let, um, sent out, and this is in our, our um, bulletins that we sent out to Enables Clinic to self-manage their published information on the Vaccine Clinic Finder. Um, next slide. Uh, update on the 5 to 11 vaccination rates. Um, so I've just highlighted uh, the three uh, council areas that are now uh, our lowest. Uh, and good news is this has changed from the last time we updated this. So the three that were the lowest last time are not the lowest this time. So if this is a motivation for um, your areas, please, please do so. Um, and then living with COVID, this is the one I wanted to focus on. Uh, we are putting out this afternoon a, a communication for a PHN program to incentivise the in-home care of people who have COVID-19. So if you are, have a client who has COVID-19 who you need to see in the home, there is a $150 um, 
incentive payments. You do not have to sign up for this program. It is a monthly billing to the PHN. So if you do no visits in, in the month of um, April, that's fine. Uh, it goes through to June 30. Uh, and if you are traveling more than an hour away from your practice, you can claim um, an extra, you can claim up to $250 uh, for that travel time uh, in that. So that will go out this afternoon with some more detail as a very simple form to fill out uh, just with some basics of why you went out to see the individual and like Bianca said uh, it may be um, to, con to continue care that is not COVID related or it may be to see a person who has COVID who uh, you're trying to keep out of an emergency department. Thank you. All right, great. So with that, um, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, you'll see in the rest of the slide deck, you can go back and access sessions. We release a podcast. I think Zach's in Thailand this week. So, you know, even though he offered, I said, don't take notes this week. So you're not seeing notes at the moment. Um, I'm keen to know if you're missing those because I think they're very valuable and I'm wondering who, um, how, how we understand use jump on and evaluate of course if you really can't be bothered doing a case um, you know template just let us know what you're seeing in the evaluation it's really the the least you could do for us um uh, as always uh, all of this is accredited you can get those certificates and, and a reminder you can go and self-record this as well so I believe you can go for the big points if you spend the time working through uh, self-recorded activities um, and we'll be thinking about how in the next triennium we can make this a peer learning activity because I think this is really great all right um, everyone I think that's it for me we've got a we're leaving a minute early how 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 great wonderful um, thanks to everyone good luck out there and uh, keep in touch let us know what's happening in your worlds and we'll see you next week Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack. That includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.